1: David Cody is executive chairman of Vertiv Holdings Co., a global data center, products, and services provider. Previously as CEO of the industrial giant Honeywell, he grew the company's market capitalization from around $20 billion to nearly $120 billion, delivering returns of 800% and beating the S&P by nearly two and a half times. Now as an author, in his new book, Winning Now, Winning Later, How Companies Can Win in the Short-Term While Investing in the Long-Term. Cody rails against today's trend of short-termism and debunks the notion that pursuing long-term business growth must come at the expense of short-term gains. Drawing from his remarkable turnaround case study at Honeywell, Winning Now, Winning Later shows how to run any organization, division, or team... Whether a nonprofit or for profit, with a new kind of rigor and balance.
0: Welcome to the Action Catalyst. Today we have David Cody with us as our guest. Welcome to the Action Catalyst, David. Well,
2: it's very good to be here. Thanks for the invitation.
0: Well, there is some really interesting topics to hop into today. And I have a long list of questions for you, but I wanted to start off with. Your experience at Honeywell and reading your bio and what all you did with Honeywell as the CEO there for many years seems so interesting, specifically how before you took over, it was in a a bit of a a loss type of situation and how you took it from that to a profit. What did you do to make that happen?
2: Well, that's a long answer. (laughs) (laughs) That's the whole book, actually. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, all right, I guess, uh, let me try to be a little more succinct with it. And we could see, uh, uh, where you want to go. Uh, there were a number of things we had to do because the company had gone through four years of turmoil with the uh, deals that had been done, deals that had not been done, uh, succession, uh, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, the company was very much in turmoil, uh, getting there. And interestingly, I was not considered a, uh, I was not, it was not widely expected that I was going to be successful with it. And there was, uh, I can remember it was on one TV show where uh, when I got there, they said, uh, well, if uh, we're not sure this company can be turned around, and if it can, we're not sure this is the right guy to do it because he didn't make it into the first tier of the GE succession race. And we know he wasn't even the first choice to run Honeywell. So what chance does this company have? So it was kind of an interesting way to begin, especially when you end up finding out that as bad as it looked externally, it was even worse internally. There were just all kinds of issues, Uh, no focus on process, culture, globalization, empty pipeline, uh, new products and services, uh, a lot of unhealthy, aggressive accounting that had uh, gone on, not a lot of cash flow. So there were uh unrecognized liabilities for asbestos environmental uh pension, so there were a lot of issues to deal with, and they took me by surprise because uh interestingly for the first four and a half months as the CEO I was not allowed to see the books so I was just expected to learn the businesses and somebody else would handle that and in fact when i Asked a finance guy from time to time how the quarter was going, they would say, I'm sorry, but we've been instructed not to answer those questions from you. (laughs) Okay, well, I guess I'll just wait. So I was kind of a more than kind of a surprise in July and August when the magnitude of the issues uh, first came, uh, I first became aware of them. And I didn't have a staff I could trust. I didn't have a board I could trust. So really, and I wouldn't go into any that you want, but I found myself saying, okay, well, um, I'm going to have to figure this out. You don't just walk out. And I felt like the first thing I had to do was scrub the accounting and business practices down to something that was real. And I've often said, and uh, started there, was that accounting was our primary information system. So if we couldn't rely on what was coming out of the accounting system, we would make bad decisions because we would think things were more or less profitable than they actually were, and we needed to start there. A second big item was establishing what culture did we want. And that's where we came forward with our 12 behaviors. I initially had 10, and in working with my staff, we uh, decided that uh, we needed 12, that while God was able to fix the world with 10 commandments, we needed 12 to fix Honeywell. <laughs> so we uh, we went forward with those. And that, that worked because it really helped to establish uh, a culture and then also established uh, five initiatives, none of which on their own or together are brilliant. It was growth, productivity, cash, people, and our enablers, the things that we would focus on to make things better. But we were relentless about it. And I can remember my communications guy coming in at the end of one year saying, geez, uh, could you give me the initiatives for next year so that we can really uh, get ahead of it with the posters and stuff? And I was just surprised, and I looked at him, and he he still is a little embarrassed by this. And I put that story in the book, but uh, I said, "Well, do you really think we're done with these yet?" And that ended up. We stuck with him for the whole time I was there because I think that constancy of purpose and culture ends up being uh, really important over time. We spent a lot of time on process. I'm a big believer that. Uh, any business, any organization is just a collection of processes. Most of them cross-functional, and the bigger your company is, the less cross-functionally it acts. So you have to think through what do you do on process because every process can be made more effective and more efficient. So how do you do that? Uh, focused on growth initiatives for us. Uh, uh, customer service was a big one because we had a problem there. Then um, acquisitions, uh, what would we do with uh, new products and services? And what would we do with uh, globalization? So we embarked on all of those, all at the same time. Uh, well, months apart, but close enough that it was a lot of change going on at the same time and we were successful with it and we didn't do it with any kind of big bang uh i've always felt that anything whenever anything has transformational or revolutionary next to it there's a good chance something'll go wrong and i'm a big believer in evolution as i uh, talk about it with any person business organization whatever it is that you want to be changing faster than your external circumstances customers competitors technology but if you're not changing faster at some point you need a revolution in order to get ahead or catch up and revolutions you just never know where they're going to go so how do you how do you change uh thoughtfully consistently faster than everybody else so that you get the miracle of compounding to work for you because once you get it moving and you're doing better consistently, just a bit better than everybody else. Well, that compounding effect is pretty substantial, as Ben Franklin pointed out.
0: Wow, you're right. That was a complex answer to a, <laughs> sorry <laughs> to a big question. What advice would you give to a leader uh, as you're you're implementing some of these steps? And what, what should you watch out for and, and kind of navigate through the harder time?
2: Yeah, good. There's a phrase uh, that I've always liked, uh, originated, I believe, with the Japanese, and I had a boss who used to use it a lot, that I really liked, that says, uh, go slow to go fast. Now, it doesn't mean go slow to go slow. Uh, what it does mean, though, is take the time to put some thought into what it is you're trying to accomplish. And sometimes people just get way over eager to just start demonstrating action. And it's similar to the problem with going too slow, where you spend all your time analyzing, but it can be just as destructive. Because if you go too fast and you end up learning you don't really know what you're doing, uh, you end up with change that uh, just doesn't work. It doesn't take with the people. Customers don't care for it. Uh, so take the time to figure that out. And whether it's a, a growth initiative, for example, uh, globalization. Uh, we looked at it and said, we need to do a better job of globalization. We only had something like uh, 44% of our sales outside the U.S. And it's too easy to just say, go around the world. Just you know, get started around the world everywhere. And we looked at it differently and said, well, we're not that good at this. So tell you what, we're going to focus on China and India, and we're just going to concentrate on those two and make sure we do a great job there. Because if we do, that's two and a half billion people. And whatever we learn, we can then transfer to uh, other countries. That worked extraordinarily well for us. Uh, Same thing when uh, we were implementing the Honeywell Operating System where think of it as the mostly the Toyota production system, just how do you uh, apply it to an existing company? Well, uh, one of the things we ended up uh, a good decision that we ended up making was we did the best practice visits, then we developed how we were going to do it ourselves, and because it's very different than if you go into a new plant and interview 100 people for every person you hire. Very different if you're going into a plant where, say, average length of service is 20 years and the plant's been there for 85 years and haven't been an hourly employee. I know you don't go in on Friday and say, hey, you just keep working the way you are. But Monday, you come in prepared to do the Honeywell operating system, so bring an entirely different mindset. In. It's just not how people are. It doesn't work. So we took our template, if you will, and tried it in ten factories. Came back after six months and said, "Okay, uh, revise the template because it worked in some, not in others." Then tried the new one in five. After six months, came back and it worked in three, not in two, and said, "Okay, let's really hone this down." Hone this down. Then we tried it in two. Uh, we said, "Okay, now we got something that works." And we had about two hundred fifty factories at the time and said, okay, what we're going to do is start with 25, and we are going to resource the hell out of those 25 to make sure that this thing works. And Interestingly, um, once you have something that works and people can see results coming out of it, well, then you get a lot more pull because, to the extent you're trying to push change, it doesn't work all that well. You get a lot of what I call compliance with words rather than compliance with intent. So yeah, they'll get you all the check marks, everything's happening, you feel good. But then you go to look at your numbers and go, gee, we're not growing any faster. We're not any more profitable. There's no more cash. You know, what the heck happened to all of this? And you find that you just didn't bring people along with you to get that done. So there's this big cultural change, mindset change that has to go along with it. And for what it's worth, I've always said uh, there are three big principles to leadership. Uh, The first one is the ability to mobilize a large group of people. Um, I've also said that's the most visible. It's the one that most leaders get measured on. Can you give an inspiring speech? But really, it's only 5% of the job. The other next two steps are the biggest ones. The second one is, can you pick the right direction? Whatever your vision is, whatever you're trying to accomplish, can you as a leader pick the right direction? And I've said, if you've got everybody mobilized and you pick the direction and you spend the next 40 years wandering in the desert because you didn't do such a great job there, you're not a good leader, no matter how exciting you might be. Then the third one, which touches on what we were talking about, is you've picked that, you've got everybody mobilized, you've picked that direction. Can you now get everyone moving step by step in that direction so that you're starting to make progress? And it's really important when you start making that progress, or you think you are to stay away from confirmation bias and, instead, to focus on falsification bias. Look for those things that say, I made a mistake. I didn't make a good decision. Now, the organization can't sense that you're doing that because if there's any ambiguity about what your goal is, that's not good for an organization. But you, as a leader, need to always be looking over your shoulder, looking for that falsification bias to say, is this or is it not working? And I had a, if this goes on too long, let me know, but I had a great example where I ignored falsification bias, and that was with my implementation of Six Sigma. Um, I'd done it the way I'd seen it uh, occur at the, my previous company and thought, okay, I'll just do the same thing, got everybody trained, everybody working on stuff, and I'd get all the feedback, yeah, yeah, it's working great. Uh We're doing this. This many people are trained, and I just kind of, kind of fell into that. And it was like, I don't know, nine years after I'd started it, I happened to visit an aerospace factory in Malaysia, and they were bragging, taking me from workstation to workstation to show, wow, uh, you know, we got this design, and it was only like fifty-five percent producible. Now we've got it up to seventy-six percent first-time pass. And I looked at it and said, seventy-six percent. We've been working on this for nine years. How can we possibly still have designs that yield is that bad? And what I ended up learning was they had just taken, the business had just taken all these unproducible designs and rather than fix the designs, put them in a low cost factory so that bad designs would cost less, which was totally anathema to what we were trying to accomplish with Six Sigma. So I had to go back and retool the whole thing to say, how are we going to do this differently? And As an example, we're doing it very differently in the new company I'm associated with, Vertiv, where we're spending a lot of time up front to say, okay, rather than this broad brush, how do we focus first, show people at work so we start to build that pull rather than have everybody agonizing about this push program and getting a lot of confirmation bias.
0: Wow. I love that. Uh, Stay away from confirmation bias and look for falsification bias.
2: Yeah. Look look for things that aren't working. Is it working the way you think it is? And that's why I spent a lot of time traveling. I spent five to six hundred hours a year on the plane, air travel, just going from place to place, meeting with sales guys, meeting with customers, and you find out some interesting stuff uh you know the I guess the third year I was doing it, I uh, visited an aerospace uh, customer at an air show, and uh, you know the business had wanted me to do this I met with the president was with me, the uh, sales manager, the product manager, and they wanted me to talk about this new product. so I went in and uh, started talking to the CEO and the first question I always ask uh, a customer CEO is so how are we doing with Uh, what you've given us already. And a a customer CEO looked at me and said, well, I'm really glad you dropped by because we've just about finalized our lawsuit against you, which we intend to give you in two weeks for non-performance on this new product. And I was just shocked. And I turned to the business leader. He was shocked. The product guy was shocked. The sales guy was shocked. And I wonder, how can we all be this shocked about something? It shows that none of us are really connected. So that was a really good falsification bias I got just by wow. v- visiting with customers.
0: Wow. Critical thinking involves being critical. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah,
2: it does. I'm not saying ignore <laughs> the stuff that's working, but that's kind of the human nature to look for that and oh, I must have made a really good decision because uh, this is working. and It's too easy to fall into that because it's a lot more comfortable. But if you find stuff that's not working, you can add a lot of value by
0: addressing it. That that's absolutely right. T- tell us a little bit about your journey. You you hinted at it with uh some of what you were saying a minute ago where you came from GE and you were at GE for a long time and I love the story and correct me if I'm wrong with this, but you started off as an hourly worker and you were yeah. promoted three times relatively quickly compared to GE standards. How did you do that and what were the learning lessons that led up to getting to where you are today while you we're at GE?
2: Well, um, I guess there's a couple of connections to make in that story. The first one was um, I'd say I was pretty much a screw off most of the time uh, growing up. School came easily to me, I didn't have to do that much. And uh, I felt like I was wasting my time in school. I just thought it was a total waste of time. How was I ever going to use any of this stuff? And I considered quitting when I was in high school as a senior, and then I did quit. Uh, I got accepted at the University of New Hampshire, and instead of going, I said, no, nah, I don't want to do this. I worked in my dad's garage, and that didn't work out so well. And Then I worked with my uncle as a carpenter, went out to Michigan, and I ended up learning that while I could understand a lot of things, making any of that stuff come out of my hands was impossible. <laughs> i just can't do it i can't fix anything so uh, i ended up going back to school and with some trauma associated with getting back into school but i did and um i spent two years there uh living on campus I always hated not having any money it's how we grew up and uh it's how i was living going to school and um I got called to the assistant dean of students office at the end of my sophomore year, and she said, uh, we're not going to allow you to live on campus anymore. I said, well, well you know, what, why? Well, what's the problem? And I had, to, of course, you know, the jeans, flannel shirt, long hair, which was in vogue back then. And she said, well, there's no one big thing. It just seems like no matter where you are, there's trouble. You're just a general troublemaker. And you could tell I'm still kind of proud of that. <laughs> but uh, I said, OK, well, I got to do something different. So I uh, got a job eventually at GE working nights and I went to school during the day and then buddy and I bought a fishing boat to go cod fishing off the coast of Maine. And that's how we were going to make our fortune. So uh, did that, and we were very unsuccessful. So, uh, he got married, and his wife basically said, You're not going to keep fishing with that idiot friend of yours, are you? So, we sold a boat, and I'd gotten a 1 8 that semester, and I had quit school again in order to be a fisherman. Uh, I got married. We were living in a third floor, unheated, uninsulated apartment in New Hampshire. So, it's a little chilly in the, in the winter. And first month I'm home, uh, first month we're married. Uh, she comes home and says, uh, I'm pregnant. I said, okay, well, how did that happen? I thought you were on the pill. And she said, well, you know, those things happen. Uh, okay. Fourth month, she says, um, I can't work anymore. And I got a little nervous. I did the math and found out that even spending no money on anything, presents for Christmas or anything like that, we were spending two bucks a week more than I was making. And I've often said all those people who talk about those great old days when a blue collar job could support a family. Said, no, that wasn't true. I was there. It's It wasn't true. Maybe true for some jobs, but not for most. And I had a hundred bucks in the bank. So I had 50 weeks to figure out what to do. And that's when I figured, okay, I got to go back to school. And I always tell my uh, oldest son, Ryan, he said, you're the reason I'm successful, because you scared the bejesus out of me. And <laughs> I thought, my, my kid's going to die because I'm a screw-off. And I remember bringing him home in February and having to tape up all the windows because the uh, draft that was coming in was moving the curtains, and I thought it was going to hurt him. And I, I was, I've never been so scared in my life as I was then. I eventually got an exempt... Job in GE. Once I graduated, after about a month or so, I managed to get a, what was called an exempt job so I could wear a suit and all that stuff. And I just kind of kept working my way up, uh, took a job on what's called the corporate audit staff. So I spent five years traveling the world auditing different businesses, which was just a tremendous experience because I, I, I learned a lot. Because every quarter you were looking at a different business, you were in a different location. And it got you really comfortable with being out of your comfort zone because you were always out of your comfort zone. You just had to learn how to to manage that. That helped to accelerate my career. And then the big step, I would say, that you were talking about on the uh, three level jump is I had an interaction uh, with Jack Welch, the CEO, that I thought was going to kill my career. In fact, I thought I was going to be fired. But instead, it turned into just this uh, tremendous accelerator for me. And I've always told people, um, advancement requires two things: performance and visibility. And that interaction with Jack gave me a tremendous amount of visibility. And I'd been performing, but it, ha- it has to really get noticed. And he did. And I-, I could take you through that story. It's a longer one, but. It uh, He included it in his book when he wrote his book, uh, I guess, 20 years ago now.
0: I'd love to hear that. There's a lot of listeners who probably are at the edge of their seat saying, yes, I want to know how to have advancement in my career. How did you do it? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, like I said, it always takes two things, performance and visibility. If you're an average performer, uh, it's not going to make a difference, uh, but you got to have visibility uh, for it. somebody people have to see it. People who can make a difference in your career have to see it. So uh, I was responsible for sending out what was called a strategic plan request in this corporate job that I had at um, uh, GE in Fairfield, Connecticut. Uh, It was a thick document and the international guys and the business development guys would uh, send it along, uh, would piggyback on my request. And before I sent it out, I actually had a meeting with my boss and his staff where I said, I don't think we should do this anymore. We send out all this stuff. People fill out all these templates, and then we don't do anything with it. It just sits in my desk drawer. And Jack has been big on eliminating bureaucracy. We should not do this. And I was voted down to a person. They all said, no, this is important. We got to do it. So I sent it out. Separately, uh, about two months later, I had been assigned to work on Jack's board pitch. For the first time, uh, I'd ever had to do that. So I'm running around, and I get a call from my uh, secretary saying uh, Jack wants to talk to you. So this is remember 1985 or so, and I'm so I get myself mentally prepared. Okay, what's the status of his board pitch, subject by subject? So I pick up the phone, and he said, "Dave, is it true?" We asked medical systems for what the ROI will be in the ultrasound business in 1989. And I'm like totally perplexed. On the other end of the line, trying to think, where the hell is this coming from? What what could this question possibly be? And it finally dawned on me, okay, it must be part of that strategic plan request. So I said, yes, uh, we do as part of this project. Man, he came through the phone at me like you wouldn't believe, with uh, the cursing and the yelling, and told me he wanted to see it right away up in his office. Says so okay, so ran back to my office, got the request, ran it to his, gave it to his uh, assistant, his uh, executive administrator, and she said, "Okay, yeah, you can go now, Dave." And I said, "No, nah, I think he wants to see me." So she walks it into him, and all of a sudden, I hear this scream, "Dave, Dave, get in here!" So I walk in and. He's sitting there with the uh, head HR guy, whose name is also Jack, and he's just flipping through the pages as fast as he can, just pissing himself off, just going through the whole thing. And he just starts cursing at me, asking me why I would do such a stupid thing. And so I'm just explaining, okay, well, it's a financial expression of the strategic plan. This is one of the things we do to make sure the strategic plans make sense, et cetera, et cetera. And this went on for about 15 or 20 minutes with him just, no matter what I said, he was yelling and cursing. And he turned to the HR guy and said, hey, you used to run Jesco. Did you ever have to do this? And he said, no, I didn't. And like I said, my mouth kind of gets away from me sometimes. And I looked over at him because I was getting annoyed. And I said, well, actually, you did. And uh, he said, well, I ran that business. I should know whether I did it or not. I said, well. It's in my desk drawer. if you want to see it, I can go get it for you, but you guys did do it, so he dis Jack Welch dismisses me, and uh, I leave, and I call my wife at the time and I said, "I think I've just been fired this is was really an unpleasant experience, and I'm not sure exactly how it works, but I think I've been fired <laughs> well. Nothing much happened. Well, I, I do get a call from the CFO later that day saying, can we stop it? And I said, No, it's coming in tomorrow. We'll look even worse if we if we do that. I mentioned it to some of my colleagues, and interestingly, their first question was, You didn't tell them that we recommended that you do it, did you? And I said, No, I didn't. And they just, you know, had a sigh of relief. So fast forward a couple of months and uh I had been on the RCA acquisition team as the junior finance guy. So we go to the RCA victory party and all of a sudden I hear Jack yell, Dave, Dave, get over here. So I go walking over and I'm thinking, Oh man, I'm going to get fired here. I've heard all the stories about what he's like. He's going to fire me to victory party. Oh, jeez. okay. Well, you know, so I got myself steeled up for it and my buddy fortunately came with me and, um, Jack looked at me and said, I was never so pissed at anybody since I was in plastics. And I looked at him and said, well, I really appreciated you sharing it with me. It was quite an experience. And he thought that was funny. Thank God he was in a good mood. And we talked for a little bit. And then my buddy looked at him and said, you know, Jack, uh, Dave actually recommended against sending out that whole request. And we all voted him down and said he had to do it. And I still remember Jack looked at me with his, like, look, of surprise. And he took his fist and put it to his side and said, so, wow, you just took the knife for those guys? And I said, well, I didn't really look at it that way. It's, I mean, it, it's not like it was anything illegal. So you don't throw in your friends for something like that. And he just kept shaking his head and saying, wow, God, okay, wow, that's really something. So we walk away because, you know, the conversation changes. And the CFO pulls me aside after a couple hours and says, hey, you know, let's talk for a bit. So. We'll go outside and sit by the fountain. And he said, You have no idea how much good you've done yourself with uh, what's happened here. I said, Well, I am hard pressed to understand how, because it sure as hell doesn't feel that way. And he said, No. Um, he has said that the way he yelled at you, he has made vice presidents cry. And you just kinda held your ground through the through the whole thing and were very polite, respectful, but you know, made your points, and then you left. And then when he found out tonight that you didn't throw in your buddies when you could have just to try to escape from the whole thing, uh, good things are going to happen to you. So it used to be in GE, it was big companies had all these levels. And if you got a one-level jump, it was considered you were doing well. If you got a two-level jump, it was considered just amazing. You were a high flyer. You were on fire. Well, all of a sudden, Jack had me interviewing for jobs that were three and four levels higher. And I got one that was three levels. I went from having no people to having 200 and having to try to figure all this stuff out. And it ended up being a troubled business because the following year, sales were down 25%. So we had to figure out what the the hell to do. But it ended up being just a great learning experience. And that's one where visibility helped
0: me. Wow. That is an amazing story. Again, I feel like I just watched a movie. That was better <laughs> than the movie that my You're wife very watched. kind. That was amazing.
2: <laughs> well, it was, as you can tell, I still remember it pretty vividly because uh, it really stuck with me. I went from thinking I'd been fired to... Uh, You know, two, three months later, all of a sudden, I've got this huge new job with, uh, you know, all the goods and bads that go with that. A bunch of people who think, oh man, got to support this guy. And then a bunch of people saying, oh man, who is this clown thinking uh, he can, he can be, uh, you know, get promoted that fast.
0: Well, and what a learning lesson for all the listeners to think through what Jack Welch respected was your integrity and that you. Uh, Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, that's I weird. mean, that is. There's so many learning lessons in that story to take away and to apply. And it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're uh, somebody that's a stay-at-home parent and and schooling your kids right now, to a CEO. Those are lessons that that are the fundamentals of when you do that. Good things happen to you. More responsibility is given to you because you're able to handle the when you're able to handle things under pressure. Uh, then when things are good, you know you're going to take care of doing the right thing always. And so, wow. That's
2: good. You're you're really good at this. There's that, uh, that <laughs> some good stuff there.
0: <laughs> well, uh, I know one of the things that's similar to that right out of your book is um, is this question. Why is it dangerous for companies and investors to focus on short-termism and to feel that long-term can only... Be achieved at the expense of short term performance. And uh, this story yeah. seems to lead right into that. So,
2: yeah, um, that's good. Uh, so, a couple of things that um, points I would make. The first one is uh, one of the things I found frustrating is all this discussion about uh, how bad short termism is. And all of the conversation seems to be geared towards. You are either short-term or you are long-term focused. Yeah, you don't do both. They're mutually exclusive. And this gets into the second point that one of the principles that we ran Honeywell on was that life and business are always about trying to accomplish two seemingly conflicting things at the same time. And it's not just about balance, it's about trying to figure out, is there something you can do that will benefit both of those conflicting goals? So Think of it this way. If you run a business with inventory, do you want low inventory or do you want good customer delivery? Uh, If you're in the marketing and sales organization, do you want high prices and margin rates or do you want big volumes? If you're trying to figure out Uh, how to empower people. Do you want people closest to the action empowered or do you want to have good control so nothing bad happens? If you've got staff functions, do you want those staff functions to work at the lowest cost possible or do you want to have great internal service? The answer in every case is you want both. And I used to say this to people all the time is, yes, I want it right and I want it fast. This is not a choice I'm making. I want both. So you figure out how to do both. The same is true when it comes to short-term, long-term. You have to be looking at it and saying, how do I do both? If you just say to investors or your boss or whomever, depending upon what level you are, uh... Geez, you know, my performance is really going to stink for three years. But then three years from now, it's going to be terrific. Investors will say, see you in three years. Your boss is likely to say, well, I'll get somebody else to do this in the meantime. You're also not going to know. You don't want to get to the end of three years and find out, oops, I was wrong. All that stuff I've been doing isn't going to pay off, which, by the way, happens. By the same token, uh, so you want that sh- kind of short-term validation points that say, my long-term effort is working. By the same token, if you're just so focused on making the short-term that, and you don't have good plans to get there in a way that still supports long-term investing, then eventually it runs dry because you haven't done any of the seed planting that you need to to be successful in year one, three, five, ten. Whatever. So you have to find a way to do both. Now, if you take a look at what we did at Honeywell, we um, first year and a half or so, uh, we had to take some big hits because we had so many problems. Uh, We had to clean up the accounting, uh, recognize asbestos, environmental, fix the pension plan, uh, get the culture going. Uh, We just had a lot we had to do. Uh, After that first year and a half, you started to see our performance be very good relative to our peers, our short-term performance. But I used to always get asked by investors, why aren't your margin rates growing faster? And I used to have to tell them, well, it's because while I could grow earnings at, say, 14%, I was only growing them at 10 because I was taking the other 4% and reinvesting it in the business, whether it was the globalization effort, new products uh, and services, the process work we were doing. And I would tell them I was doing the seed planting. Now, they didn't like it. I can't say that they applauded and said, oh, man, Dave, that's genius. That's a really appreciate you doing that. So we outperformed our investor peers in the short term, but not by a huge amount. Uh, It really started to come together after about six years when all that stuff we had been doing, it just accumulates. You end up with this miracle of compounding, this cumulative effect. Uh, So, for example, take an R&D from about 3% of sales to about 6% of sales. We didn't do it all at once. We just kind of did it steadily, steadily, and kept investing in new products. Well, all of a sudden, you have this plethora of new product, this new service that's coming out, and people are looking at it and going, wow, that's some really good stuff. Now, you don't have to keep investing that much more in R&D, so you can finally start to reap the harvest, if you will. At the same time, you can continue to do seed planting at that same rate, if that makes sense.
0: Wow, that is brilliant. Yeah, you, you can't eat your, uh, your seed feed. <laughs> you no. Need. Yeah, you, you need your seed corn. To you got to keep planting it. <laughs> yeah. But it's
2: also uh, it, it's possible to go. You, we were talking about go slow to go fast. It is possible to go too fast with something like that, too. And if you're trying to, say, do the seed planting at a rate that the organization can't handle, then you're just going to waste a bunch of money. Mm -hmm. So that's why I always figured, okay, um, I'm going to keep steadily increasing the R&D rate, but I'm going to give some return to share owners also because I just don't think I can effectively spend it.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. That's brilliant, uh, and I think there's a lot of people taking notes of that, sitting there going, "Wow, am I sacrificing the short term uh, short term gain for the long term payoff?" And I think that's uh, applicable to life in general. You don't have to be a business person <laughs> where it's easier to. Everybody wants to get rich quick. Everybody wants to lose weight by taking the pill, <laughs> and nobody's actually willing to do the the difficult side of things and stay the course. And yeah. You know, invest with a long-term strategy in mind. That is amazing. Uh, well, I'm so interested in your book. So tell us, is this all, a lot of this content and these stories found in the book, winning now, winning later. Tell us a little bit about why you wrote it and uh, the content in the book. That would uh, That's fascinating.
2: Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, A lot of this is in the book and, and more, as you might expect, because it's, uh, um, I don't know, 300 pages or so. Um, I guess a couple of things. One, I got some, uh, strong endorsements to write a book. So I got support from guys as varied as Hank Paulson and Barack Obama to tell me you really need to write a book about, uh, this stuff about the leadership, the, how do you make some of these things, uh, happen. So that was, uh, uh, one inducement. Uh, the second one was, uh, I felt like we really had done something unique at Honeywell and I wanted to be able to document it and in a way that would be useful to people 20 years from now just as much as it is today and I wanted every page to be useful because I I'd, I'd read too many business books in my life where I always my kind of joke was every business book I've ever read would have made a great pamphlet <laughs> it's 10 pages of concept and something useful and 250 pages of stories that you can just kind of fly uh, right through. So I wanted something that, okay, when you read it, uh, every page could have something that could be useful to you. And it, I, I'm the, I don't think the whole book is going to be useful to everybody 100%. But I do think that as people go through it, they're going to find, wow, there's stuff in here that I could do or that uh, is really interesting. I didn't want it to just be a lot of high-minded concepts. I wanted it to be a lot of, okay, this is how you do it. This is exactly what you're trying to get done, whether it's uh, how do you organize your calendar, how do you run a meeting, how do you think about how many leaders do you want to have, how exactly do you do uh, mergers and acquisitions, and how do you do a transition, how do you handle a recession, how do you uh, build a culture, really stuff that's a lot more specific. I got to say, it was uh, a lot of work to do it, a lot more work than I ever expected.
0: But I've, I've got to admit, I'm pretty pleased with, with what we came up with. Wow. Wow. And a uh, couple more questions. This is just too, too much good content here to, to <laughs> stop. Uh, I, I wanted to also, I know one of the chapters in the book is about um, overcoming adversity You've, you've made it through several recessions and, and downturns in the economy. Here we are. I think uh, everybody will, will think about the year 2020. And with the pandemic, uh, people being forced to shelter and work from home, uh, you have a state of emergency and, and it's global. So this is something that's different. And you'd probably have to go back to the Spanish flu to draw some comparisons. And uh, I don't know what's going to end up happening into the future, but for where we're at right now, what would you say, um, how have you been managing the effects of COVID, and how, how are you encouraging people around you who are other leaders on how to make it through a time like this?
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, to your point, this recession is uh, very different than ones we've had in the past. Who knows exactly how long it'll go on or uh, how difficult it will be? I've said the one thing I do know is that nobody else does know. So you have to be, uh, as I like to say, uh, hope for the best, prepare for the worst, uh, because you just don't know. The thing that uh, complicates this, is the point you were making, is there's a health issue uh, involved. So you have to start first, of course, with, okay, with whatever I'm doing, uh, is this safe for everybody else? So uh, that's very different than anything we've ever had to do in the past. once you get past that, I'd say there's some uh, general principles that I like to think about. Uh, the first one is, as a leader, don't panic. And if there's one thing an organization can't handle, is if if a leader is panicking about stuff. The leader is the one that has to be the most clear headed about uh, everything, and really thinking through the ramifications of their uh, decisions. And it gets into kind of the second point. Which is uh, leaders need to be really good at independent thinking, and I'm fond of saying that independent thinking is a lot more rare than being smart. You can you can find all kinds of smart people went to great schools, and they can tell you exactly what uh, the herd is thinking out there at any point in time. But you really need this is a time where you really need to be able to think for yourself. And say, okay, what do I think is true here? What's the best way to handle it? And how do I work my my way through this? Uh, The next piece of it I would say is uh, you shouldn't be trying to achieve consensus on anything, uh, especially when you're dealing with a bunch of unknowable stuff, which this has. Uh, Your job as a leader, and this is where running an effective meeting matters, is to get all the facts and opinions so that you have all the information possible. Uh, Make sure you really discuss what the solution may be and don't try to work for consensus. Work to make sure that you make the best decision possible and proceed with it. Once you've made that decision, going back to the beginning is look for falsification bias. Was I wrong? Uh, you can't tell everybody you're doing that because they can't handle the fact that you might think you're wrong, but you have to really be looking for it to make sure that it's uh, that it's there. Um, last piece I might add is um, it's very easy when you're in the middle of a tough time to just think of it in terms of, well, this is going to be like this forever, so th- this is how I'm going to act. And I'm big on telling people that In the middle of the recession, when it's at its worst, is when you need to be thinking about recovery. How are you going to handle recovery? And In any business, it usually comes down to two things, uh, suppliers and people, so that whatever it is you're doing as you uh, make your decisions about how to cut costs or how to save cash, make sure you're thinking about, is this going to hurt my ability to recover? And it's one of the reasons that I've always liked furloughs, for example, a lot better than layoffs because you preserve your, uh, you preserve your industrial base. The last piece I might add is uh, independent of the health issue, which always has to come first. Uh, I like to say that whatever you're doing, there's three constituencies you got to think of. Your customers, your investors or owners, and your people. Of those three, Customers have to come first. And whether it's a delivery of product or service, or the new things that you've promised are going to be out there, you have to find a way to continue to do a great job for them. Because when the recovery comes, uh, they're going to remember whether you were there for them or not. So make sure you think about your customers. And whatever pain ends up occurring, needs to end up being split between investors and employees in a way that, uh, as the leader, you think is the most appropriate.
0: Wow. That is amazing. Five steps. Don't panic. Leaders are the independent thinkers. Yep. Don't try to achieve consensus. Think about the future and the recovery, and customers come first. That you
2: is- know, I, I, should, I should add one more, and that okay. is... Um, There's a lot of pressure on a leader from employees when you're in a time like this to tell us what's going to happen. How bad is this going to get? The leaders that I've seen make mistakes here are the ones who actually try to come across like they know. And getting back to what I was saying before is the one thing I do know is that no one else does know. There's a lot of people that can talk about it, can speculate this is what it's going to be, but none of us really know. And you got to be honest with your employees on that. When they say, okay, this is our third week of furlough. When does this stop? you got to be able to look them in the eye and say, I'm sorry, but I I don't know. That's just unknowable at this point. It really depends on what happens out there. And none of us can know that yet. But here's what we're doing. It will end. And we're making sure that we continue to invest for the future. Uh, I should have mentioned that one also. It's One of the things that we made a point of doing is uh, we continued all our growth programs, and we're doing the same thing at Vertiv now at the company I'm associated with. Uh, All the new product and service programs that we had going, the sales growth initiatives, all of those are still going on because, as part of the recovery, this is a great way to steal a march on your competition.
0: Love that. Yes, Absolutely don't act like you're a fortune teller. Um, stay, stay focused on the here and now um, put out, deal with real time situations daily and uh, don't overreact and, and don't underreact and uh, look at it every single day and make real time decisions. That is keep crazy. doing, keep doing the seed
2: planting because it's too easy. Uh, as soon as the recession starts, You'll get it from your staff or people saying, well, you know, the first thing we need to do is stop this new stuff. No, actually, that's the one thing we got to make sure we keep doing, because that's what's going to make sure that we benefit from this recession better than our competitors do, because we've kept doing the right things.
0: Yeah, yeah, that is amazing. Well, I feel like I could talk with you all day. Um, However... (laughs) Well, what, uh, what would be the best way for people to connect with you and uh, to get the book and uh, just stay connected to amazing content like what we've talked about today?
2: Uh, well, the book can be pre-ordered on uh, Amazon now, and uh, I'm on LinkedIn, so that's the best way to connect I me. Mean, I avoided it for a lot of years, but now that, uh, now that I'm an author... I uh, said, okay, now is the time. If I'm going to get the message out and make people aware, then this is a smart thing for me to do. So I'm on LinkedIn now.
0: Excellent. Excellent. And if you're looking up the book, it's Winning Now, Winning Later, if they were to look that up on on Amazon. Yep. Blue cover. Excellent. Excellent. Well, David, we're so uh, thankful to have you on the Action Catalyst. This has been such a great uh, opportunity to meet you and hear these stories. And uh, we're so thankful for having you on here.
2: Well, you're very kind and I uh, appreciate the support and the questions. They were good ones.
1: If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to subscribe. To stay updated on everything that the Action Catalyst is up to, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Action Catalyst Podcast and Twitter at Catalyst underscore Action. Thanks for listening.